BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For the second year in a row, there's a harmful algae bloom growing along some bay shorelines. Last year, the burst of microorganisms killed off huge numbers of fish, leading to gnarly scenes in some places, especially Lake Marin. So why is this happening again? How might it be linked to climate change and our industrial water infrastructure? As part of our latest edition of Climate Fix, our collaboration with the KQED science team, we'll be talking with experts about the whole range of what's happening from the microscopic picture of the single-celled organism in question to the satellite images of what's happening across the bay. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Heterosigma akashiwo. That's the tiny creature that's currently responsible for the harmful algal bloom that's affecting parts of the bay shoreline, turning the water a really uncomfortable tea-like brown. There's always something strange about a bloom like this. Single-celled creatures measured in fractions of a millimeter, and for reasons that remain obscure, reproduce so wildly that they disrupt the ecosystem of a huge chunk of the Bay Area. This year, though, it feels particularly portentous. That's because this is two years in a row that this species has made itself a bit too at home in the waters of our region. And it makes you wonder, is this our new normal? Joining us for this month's installment of Climate Fix, our regular collaboration with the KQED science team, we've got our own Ezra David Romero, who's been covering the algal bloom and the microorganism. Hey there. Welcome. We're also joined by Eileen White, Executive Officer for the Water Board SF Bay Region. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you for having me this morning. And John Rosenfeld, Science Director of San Francisco Baykeeper, which you probably know is an environmental watchdog nonprofit group that first identified this year's bloom after receiving a tip. Welcome. Good morning. Um, Ezra, let's just start with the basics here. You've been reporting on this year's bloom. Which areas in the Bay have been affected so far? First off, the East Bay, places like um, Berkeley, Emeryville, Albany, those are the areas where they was first located. But I talked to John last week, and he said they were getting calls from as far as Tiburon and all, all these areas across the bay. Mm. So it's pretty much, we don't know the exact extent, but we know that it's like widespread now in the bay. Exactly. I wouldn't say widespread across the entire bay, just in these isolated sections of the bay where the water isn't as deep and these things can warm up. Got it. 
So what's it actually like if you were to go to the shoreline and you were to like look down at the water? Could you immediately see like, okay, yes, something's going on here? I think in some places, yes. In other places, no. Some places the water's brown and looks turbid. Some places it look, there's things floating. There might be dead fish um, washed up. So in some places, some photos I saw, the water looked brown. Mm. Like it looked browner than it normally does in the bay, right? Mm-hmm. It looks normally like that greenish color here and it looked dirt brown. Yeah, our photographer Beth LeBurge took a, a photo that's uh, kind of horrifying, which is on some of your stories. You can check it out on KQED. Um, I also want you to compare this a little bit to kind of the peak of last year's bloom. Like I went down to Lake Merritt during that time with my kids and you saw these things like floating in the water. And at first you're like, well, what are those things? And you realize it was all these like dead fish. Are we at that place yet? Not at all. I mean, last year, right, we had this huge fish kill where we saw scores of fish, bat rays, all these animals, I mean, sea creatures that are dead on the shore, especially like Lake Meriden along the East Bay shore. This year, um, according to this iNaturalist where they're like taking all these like citizen science photos, there's like 39 observations so so far. So Mm -hmm. that pales in comparison to last year, but it's... But something John told me actually is that like we're a week into this, you know, mm. versus last year when this has happened. This happened, we were like many weeks into it, and so we're in a very different place. Got it. Got it. And we'll we'll come to sort of that um, as well. You know, Eileen, I wanted to ask you. You know, after last year's bloom, which you know I think was the the first that had happened in quite some time in the Bay Area, were you expecting this to happen again? I'd say after last year's bloom, we were uncertain if we were going to experience another one this summer. We do know that San Francisco Bay is nutrient-enriched, and it's been historically resilient to the adverse effects seen with other nutrient-enriched estuaries, but we've seen the resilience waning, and so we were uncertain. Um, And also, we don't know exactly what caused the bloom last year, but we do know that the nutrients fed the bloom, so we've been carefully monitoring the bay with our partners. You know, when we talk about the nutrients, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about these are, this is um, particles that are coming out of wastewater plants from around the Bay? Yeah, about two-thirds of the nutrients of San Francisco Bay are discharged through the 37 wastewater agencies or wastewater treatment plants that discharge to San Francisco Bay. Um, So it's part of uh, the waste that comes in. And wastewater plants... Um, don't remove enough nutrients. They do some through the secondary processes, but generally they don't remove enough to be protective of San Francisco Bay, as we're seeing. And the Water Board has taken this very seriously, and we've been studying nutrients in San Francisco Bay for many years. Hmm. What about uh, other, you mentioned that other estuarial places, you know, I'm thinking you know, other bays around this this country. Like, what do we know from them, Eileen, that what have we learned about what they have done to reduce nutrient loads, if anything? That it's, it's a very challenging and complex um, uh, process to look at, to see what you need to do. The Chesapeake Bay is uh, one that we've been following, and they ended up with dead spots where there's no, you know, marine life, and we don't want ever that to happen at San Francisco Bay. So we realized that reducing nutrients is one of the things we do control. We can't control the temperature and with warming temperatures with climate change, um, we don't control the turbidity of the water, the wave action and sunlight. But one of the things we do control is the nutrient discharges to San Francisco Bay. So that's something that we will be uh, 
monitoring, we're continuing to monitor and we'll be uh, asking the wastewater utilities to reduce their nutrient loads as part of the next permit that will be issued next year. John uh, Rosenfeld with Baykeeper. I want to walk through some of the scientific parts of, of this bloom. So we've got the same type of algae as last year. What can you tell us about you know, how this species works and, you know, why this is happening, whatever we know. The, uh, the organism, Heterosigma akashiwo, is a, it's a, it's an algae, uh, with a tail. So it actually can swim. Um, and it turns out that it, it seems to be a pretty aggressive competitor with, um, with the other phytoplankton in the water. I mean, there, there are many, many, many species of algae and other, things we call phytoplankton, right, photosynthetic organisms in the bay. They're part of the food web. They support, you know, the, the animal life that we see in the bay. And they're here naturally. Uh, and usually they're, you know, they're all competing for sunlight and, and these nutrients that Eileen mentioned. Uh, and they're also getting sloshed around by, by uh, waves and by the tides um, such that n- none of them actually dominates, right? They're, they're constantly in a process of getting um, disturbed, so to speak, in, in ecological terms. Uh, and then for reasons we don't quite understand and, you know, may not understand, um, one organism begins to take over, right? Conditions mm-hmm. are right for mm-hmm. that organism. Uh, maybe its competitors are down for some reason or predators are not there, the sunlight is just right, the temperature is just right, uh, the nutrients are always there, as Eileen mentioned, uh, and one takes off, and, and that's when we call it a bloom. So these are bloom-forming organisms. They're not always blooming. What we're seeing now is a, is a bloom. And uh, heterosigma is, has been known to form blooms elsewhere in the world, and those blooms are associated with uh, fish kills very often. Mm. Um, so that's, that's what we're seeing here is one organism kind of dominating its, you know, the the phytoplankton uh, flora. Do we know precisely what ends up killing the fish? We don't. We don't. Um, they're, you know, in the general category of harmful algal blooms, which cover a whole range of organisms, many of which are not algae. It's just a kind of catch-all phrase. Um, there are multiple mechanisms, depending on what organism you have. Uh, in when, when you get a bloom... That's a, a lot of biomass, uh, and when that bloom dies back, bacteria and stuff are eating the the organism, and that can deplete oxygen in the water column. And of course, if there's no oxygen, then animals can't can't live. Um, that doesn't appear to be what happened last year. the The drop in dissolved oxygen in the, in the water happened after we began to see hmm. fish die. Right, so we're we're still kind of looking into this more, and and the jury's still out. But our initial indication is that it was not a dissolved oxygen problem that was creating the the massive fish kills that we saw. Um, this organism is known to produce certain flavors of of toxin, uh, but how those toxins operate and how they affect certain species differently is is really unknown and and we weren't able to find the toxin in the water we d- we didn't weren't able to do the, those tests last year so you know anything that kills fish in this way i think worries people um if someone were to get in the water you know they they go into this brown water they don't really know is it dangerous to people what what do we know about that yeah it's a it's a great question um this organism this organism is 
not known to be acutely toxic to people or pets. There are harmful algal blooms, say, in the Bay's Delta that different species, in fact, not an algae, cyanobacteria, that are very harmful mm-hmm. to people and pets. But this organism that causes the, that is causing the red tide here uh, this summer and last is not known to be acutely toxic. However, when you get a bloom of, you know, you can see the, the, the effects of the organism in the water because the water is now the color of tea. Um, you're talking about a large biomass. They're producing lots of chemicals. And even if those chemicals aren't, quote, toxic, there can still be an irritant to exposed skin, uh, you know, mucous membranes, lungs, you know, yeah. breathing passages, etc. So we advise, you know, common sense. If it doesn't look like bay water, don't, don't <laughs> swim in it. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely, I, I noticed that. I think you might have uh, told Ezra that for one of his stories. It's like, you know, basically don't get in the funny colored water. Exactly. Um, right. which, which makes a lot of sense. So um, it's, always, it's always a good uh, principle. Yeah. Uh, John, for you, two years in a row of this, do, is this like a new regime or do you think this is just kind of like a, uh, a secondary bloom based on what happened last year? We, we don't really know. It could be either. Um, there's, there's reason to believe that the bloom last year sort of set us up for this year's bloom. Um, and as, as Eileen mentioned, the bay is in the 90th percentile of estuaries around the world for enrichment of dissolved nitrogen and dissolved phosphorus. That's the, the, the food source for algae. Temperatures always reach temperatures that will sustain a bloom uh, in the bay during the summer. Sunlight you know, in San Francisco, you may not know, but over in the East Bay, uh, I'm an East Bay person. There's there's plenty of sunlight, right? So so the conditions are always right to support a, a bloom, uh, and that's what we're worried about going forward. And I should add that if it's not this organism, heterosigma, there are 12 Others. or 13 other harmful algal bloom-forming species hmm. that we need to worry about, and so that's why we're taking this problem very seriously. We're talking about the return of the algal bloom in Bay Area waters and what we can do about it. Joined by John Rosenfeld, Science Director of San Francisco Baykeeper, Ezra David Romero, KQED Climate Reporter, and Eileen White, Executive Officer for the Water Board SF Bay Region. We'd love to take your questions about the algal bloom. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the return of the harmful algal bloom in Bay Area waters, what it is, 
What we can do about it, this is Climate Fix, our regular collaboration with the KQED science team. And we're joined by Ezra David Romero from that team, the KQED climate reporter who's been covering the bloom. John Rosenfeld, Rosenfield, excuse me, uh, science director of San Francisco Baykeeper, environmental watchdog, nonprofit group. And Eileen White, executive officer for the Waterboard SF Bay region. We are taking your questions about the algal bloom in the bay. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Instagram, threads, or KQED Forum. Um, Eileen, we have uh, some comments from listeners who are just really sad about this. Um, Matoki on our Discord writes in to say, I saw the news that the algae is back and almost cried. I don't know if my heart can take yearly fish die-offs. This better not be our new normal. And I was hoping you could walk us through how your agency is thinking about the possible trajectories that could play out this year. Yeah, well, first I'd like to start off is as a lifelong Bay Area resident who grew up fishing off Muni Pier with my three brothers and two sisters, it was devastating to me to see the loss of fish in San Francisco Bay last summer. So I take this very personally and the waterboard team takes it very seriously. So when we look at what happened last summer and we've studied it, it was really hit a tipping point. And it's that science is informing us as we issue the permit next year, that the one thing we control is nutrients to the bay that Mm -hmm. we can control. We can't control the temperature. We can't Mm -hmm. control the sunlight. So our plan is to require um, the wastewater utilities that discharge of San Francisco Bay to significantly reduce their nutrient loads. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it doesn't happen overnight. Having managed a large wastewater agency and managed large construction projects for a wastewater treatment plant, it takes time to plan, design, mm-hmm. and then put out to bid a project a major uh, infrastructure project, and you have to operate the wastewater treatment plant while it's being done. Mm -hmm. So it is going to take time, but we're on it. We're taking it very seriously. And as someone who's run around Lake Merritt for over 20 years, multiple times a week, I was devastated personally by the fish loss in San Francisco Bay and in Lake Merritt last summer. Well, let me ask you this. So it's just impossible to say, actually cut back the nutrients like right now, because maybe that would stop the bloom from advancing. That's correct. You can't just, you can't turn it off. So the wastewater keeps flowing to the wastewater plants. We all Mm -hmm. flush the toilet every day. The waste arrives and human waste has nutrients. And so they have to operate these wastewater treatment plants. You don't want the wastewater backing up onto the streets. And in order to reduced nutrients, there's various treatment technologies available depending on what percent reduction you want. Right now, most of the 37 POTWs have already looked at their plants and done what they can to optimize their operations to minimize nutrient loads to the bay. Then there's looking at what if you build a treatment plant improvements to treat part of the stream that's called side stream treatment, where a low flow stream called the centrate that's highly concentrated with nutrients is treated. Mm -hmm. Then there's other upgrades you can do that treat bigger portions of the stream. And then we're also encouraging the wastewater utilities to look at multi-beneficial solutions, such as horizontal levees, uh, wetlands restoration while treating nutrients, and also um, looking at recycled water Mm -hmm. projects. Having said that, each of the 37 wastewater agencies in the Bay Area have different site constraints. Some of the big ones are located right on the Bay. They don't have space to... uh, 
build big wetlands and horizontal levees. So they're going to have to do treatment upgrades, which take time to Hmm. plan, design, and construct. Thank you for that, Eileen. You know, um, John Rosenfield, science director for Baykeeper, uh, we said two-thirds of the nutrients are coming from the wastewater plants. Well, what about the the other third? Is there any possibility of doing anything with those? Yeah. I mean, the other sort major sources of nutrients to the bay are stormwater runoff from city streets uh, or, you know, suburban streets too, mm-hmm. uh, lawn, suburban lawns. Um, and inflow from the Delta, which is draining the Central Yeah, because that's how you think of it in the Mississippi, right? And those blooms that were going on in the Gulf were from the you know fertilizer runoff right, right. out of the cornfields and stuff. Right. So each of those two categories is worth you know fifteen to twenty percent um, of of the nutrient load, and and certainly um, you know, well, I should say that those averages are averages, and it varies in space. So the closer you are to the Delta, the more important the Hmm. agricultural runoff from the Central Valley is. And the closer you are to San Francisco and San Jose, the, the more important the, um, the, the wastewater treatment plant inputs are. Um, also, it varies in time. So, you know, it hasn't rained in the Bay Area in a few months. Um, so there's not a lot of stormwater runoff um, to, to contribute. Um, in, in San Francisco, also, San Francisco has a combined sewer and stormwater system. So it's actually treating its urban runoff as well as, as long mm. as that system is functioning as, as designed. Um, so the, the deal is you've got the major component of it from wastewater treatment plants. There are 37 people to deal with. It's very c- complicated. The solutions will vary for each one of those. But that's a lot better than um, trying to deal with every city sewer, <laughs> right? And, or you know, throughout the Bay Area or... Um, Central Valley water, which is where I spend most of my time, that's that's yeah. much more complicated than this. So we're really, you know, in a sense, lucky that there's only 37 uh, different entities to deal with, and we we know what we need them to do. And there are multiple. And that solutions. there's already a kind of regulatory apparatus. In there's place, a regulatory right? apparatus. The technology is well worked out. Yeah. There's various technologies that can be applied. Um, it, it will take time, but but this is a imminently solvable problem, yeah. right? Um, so. Let's uh, let's bring in a caller here, Trout in San Rafael. Welcome. Hi, thanks a lot. This is such a very simple question compared to the science that you're talking about. But I take my Labrador Retriever swimming in the bay, and then I take him also in a pond in the hills. And um, I'm just wondering if there's a way that I can tell from just looking at the water whether or not it's probably safe. Like in the pond, for example, I can see the you know, the bottom of the pond, 10, 15 feet from the shoreline. And the same kind of thing is true uh, in the bay that I take them to. It's at a place called Loch Lomond, in San, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. Marin County. And I'm just wondering if there's a guideline or anything that you mm-hmm. can tell the many Labrador. Or like owners, a place you know, to check, where, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ezra, yeah what how, do you, how do you check? Yeah. From what I understand, it's just very visual. Like you look at it the bay, and if it's not the normal blue green and it's brown or tea colored, it means it has this algae in it. And maybe the algae itself isn't toxic to the dog or you, but there are bacteria and things in that water. When the algae bloom gets worse, that can be that can cause rashes and things like that. So I think the general guideline is to not go in that water. John, what about like at a at, at a higher level? Like, is there sort of satellite monitoring, or is there are there agencies for putting out advisories? Like, if if trout wanted to check ahead of time, uh, <clears throat> there is a, a satellite monitoring uh, site uh, that 
San Francisco Estuary Institute has put together. Um, I can get you the, the the website for that. That shows sort of the the reflectance of of chlorophyll, which is mm-hmm. algae writ large, right? But when there's a bloom, you can kind of use that as a proxy for okay, that's where this harmful algae might be. Um, and there are daily updates uh, on that site. It's sort of color coded with relative scale, right? If it's bright red, then that's where it's bad. And uh, if it's blue, that's where it's not as bad. But it's it's also really hard to tell down to the level of, can I go swimming at this beach? I mean, mm. you know, one pixel from the sat- on a satellite image is, you know, several <laughs> hundred meters that you could be swimming in. And uh, the shoreline is particularly susceptible to the beginnings of these these blooms. So really, it's it's a it's a judgment call. I mean, if it doesn't look like you expect the bay to look like, like it's looked all your life that you've been swimming in it, then then exercise caution, uh, you know, the same way you would with air, right? If it doesn't look like air, if you can see it, then you probably, <laughs> right, shouldn't, right, right. probably shouldn't breathe it, right? Um, so fortunately, this bloom is, you know, again, not known to be acutely toxic to people. We don't have reports of, of um, really bad outcomes. We do have reports of skin irritations and stuff, but but they're mild. Uh, the more this is a cautionary tale of we, we could have a bloom of a very bad, very toxic organism, and that would really, uh, well, mm. it would change our advice uh, and our and our level of caution, um, and it would change the you know the yeah. the impact of this of this bloom. Um, Ezra, to what extent do you see this as a, a climate change problem? You know, Eileen um, mentioned earlier, you know, um, temperatures rising. We've heard ab- about, you know, uh, higher ocean temperatures, you know, uh, in other places of the world. Like, how much is this a climate problem and how much is this another type of environmental problem? I'd say it's both. I think it's first and foremost a nutrient problem, right? We have this bay full of these nutrients. We have these wastewater treatment plants that are, like, essentially putting putting them in all the time. But in the background, we have climate change, right, happening. And as the bay and the ocean gets warmer, this problem will get could get worse. And I talked to scientists, a bunch of them last week, and they all said that we should expect to see more algal blooms and red tides as a consequence of climate change. This particular algae likes warm water, right? And it likes warm, stillish water. And if there's like, if there's not, if the water's not churning, if the water's clear and it's warm, they're going to thrive. And if our water is warmer because of climate change. They can provide this perfect little petri dish for them to like thrive in. And then we also have like this ba- bouncing back and forth between wet and dry years, right? And dry years, we may not have a lot of runoff pushing this water out um, or like churning this water up. And so it, we can ebb and flow from ha- having all these perfect conditions for these species to thrive. Hmm. I think that's, you know, that's the the right way to look at it is climate change can exacerbate this problem, but we've known that nutrient enrichment in the bay was a problem and that harmful algal blooms like this were likely for 30 years. So, you know, there, there are a whole suite of problems that result from things we do and, you know, neglect at, at some level um, that are made worse potentially by climate change, but like solving climate change doesn't solve the original yeah. problem, which was always there. Mm. And sometimes I feel like there, it's, there's a tendency to excuse the, oh, the harmful algal bloom is caused by climate change. Well, there's nothing we can do about that. You know, 
I'm not saying that, but that's the yeah, way yeah, people yeah. think. Yeah. And uh, and so and so it leads to um, an apathy where where this is a very solvable problem that existed before climate change, and the way to solve it is to address nutrients that we dump into the bay. Yeah. You know, Eileen, I, I wanted to ask you. You know, earlier you mentioned that the bay had seemed, you know, somewhat resilient to these harmful algal blooms that had been seen around. What were the factors that seemed to be keeping the bay healthy even as we did have these high nutrient loads and we had high temperatures? Yeah, it's true because it's very nutrient rich. And what we've attributed it to is that we didn't have the problems of other nutrient rich estuaries is because the bay's turbid environment. So the turbidity limits the light penetration essential for the algae to grow. And then the strong tidal mixing limits periods of stratification for the algae to thrive on the bay surface. And then the filter feeding clams that vacuum up and graze on the algae or phytoplankton. So those were what we were attributing it to, but we knew that it looked like it was waning. And that's why we have been requiring extensive funding from the wastewater utilities to fund these scientific studies. And why we've also asked them to prepare a number of reports looking at what it would take um, to actually reduce their nutrient loads and to continue to monitor. So we've gathered a lot of good information. And because it's not a cheap solution, we wanted to make sure we get it right. And then last summer, I think, was a game changer when we saw the massive fish kills. That really led to, okay, the resilience of the bay is truly waning, and now we need to require nutrient reductions. But it's not a, a cheap solution. The public's going to have to pay for it. So we want to get it right when we issue the permit next year. Hmm. Let's uh, bring in Julia in San Francisco with an ecological question. Welcome, Julia. Hi. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Oh, great. Okay. I have a question. Um I've been watching this play out. At the, I'm working every day at the Berkeley Marina, and I'm mm. just wondering if the uh, well, actually today it's very green, which is good news. But um, did the seals and sea lions and birds are they able to see through that dark water to locate their fish? I know I know the marine mammals use mm. other ways of locating, but is, does it hinder them from finding their food? I guess is my question, John. That's a it's a great question. The short answer is I don't know. Um, uh, I, you know, don't necessarily think that the bloom would uh, be hiding fish because, it, it, to me at least, the water seems a little clearer because it's sort of devoid of um, other organisms that that reflect a lot of light. Uh, but but I'm not an expert in how um, how you know bird eyes or or yeah. marine mammals eyes would work so i don't i don't think so but it's a great question well and last year if i'm right i don't think we saw marine mammal die off right we as we're doing not from i remember it was mainly fish yeah yeah Yeah, the the fish kill last year was the dramatic part of it and you know when the fish kill began to happen um you know the, the real heroes here were community scientists who got out and really documented the problem much more than uh, any of the agencies could have. Um, and when people hear about a fish kill, then they start noticing other things that are dead. Uh, so dead, a lot of dead birds got reported. Some marine mammals got reported too. Uh, we just don't know whether there's a connection between, I mean, the, the fish die-off was pretty obviously connected to the algal bloom. Whether the birds and mammals are also connected is is 
remains to be studied. Sort of a yeah. Noticing bias. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ezra, this year, right, iNaturalist is also seems like going to be a gathering place for these kinds of observations. For people who do want to get uh, involved in this way, like, what do they, they just download the iNaturalist app? Like, what do they do? Yeah, you just get on your phone. There's an app called iNaturalist, or you can, I think you can also. Yeah, there's like a Do web these presence. web, web yeah. presence as well. It's really easy. I've used it for all kinds of citizen science projects where you basically take your phone out, you see the dead fish or the algae bloom, and you take a picture of it, you upload it, and I think it has this uh, identifier which identifies what, what it is, and you can choose what species mm-hmm. it is, and then you put all the information. And I think the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is, put, is gathering all the images that they believe are connected with this and putting them all in one place on iNaturalist on the web- website. So you can go there now and see, and I'm looking at it right now, and there's bat rays. There's mm-hmm. white sturgeons, dungeness crab, birds, all kinds of things mm-hmm. on there. Yeah. You know, Eileen, um, one of our listeners also had the question of, is there anything that can be physically done to reduce the bloom now? Like, could uh, could you actually physically take the algae out of the water? If you think about the bay and the tides and, and the moving of the algae and it's big, it's heavy, it's physically not possible mm-hmm. to lift up this algae, put it on boats and um yeah it just yeah having swam when when there's been algae blooms it's very difficult to pull up and and Mm. work with it's so heavy so no that's not really um something we're looking at Hmm. yeah no that's it's really interesting um prevention is the only cure here yeah We're talking about the return of the harmful algal bloom in Bay Area waters, what it is and what we can do about it. This is another edition of Climate Fix, which is our regular collaboration with the KQED science team. We're joined by Ezra David Romero, KQED climate reporter who's covering the bloom. John Rosenfield, science director of San Francisco Baykeeper, which you probably know is an environmental watchdog group that first identified this year's bloom. We've also got Eileen White, executive officer for the Water Board SF Bay region. We're going to get to a bunch of your questions. A bunch have been coming in. We're, we're piling them up about the algal bloom in the Bay. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We're KQED Forum. A lot of people um, are just really sad about what's uh, what's happening here, and some people are frustrated. Uh, Victoria writes, how can we build more housing, inviting more people to live here when we can't even properly deal with the waste from those that already do? Many of us swim in the bay hoping for it to get cleaner, so it's beyond depressing that it's getting worse. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the return of the harmful algal bloom in Bay Area waters. What it is, what we can do about it. Last year, it killed a lot of fish, especially in Lake Merritt. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen this year. This is another edition of Climate Fix, our regular collaboration with the KQED science team. Joined by Eileen White, executive officer for the Waterboard SF Bay region. John Rosenfield, science director of San Francisco Baykeeper. And Ezra David Romero, KQED climate reporter, who has been covering the algal bloom for the station. Um, let's get to some of these questions that uh, that people have here first. Um, Ezra, this kind of uh, this is an easy one. Uh, we'll go here. Okay. Denise writes: I looked at a map. I don't see a channel between Lake Merritt and the Bay. Why is it affected by algal blooms in the Bay? I believe there's like piping underneath, like the highway and things, whatever whatever's between there that brings the water in, yeah. into right. into Lake it, Merritt. It, it rises and flows falls with the yeah, tides it's it's connected um and and it's kind of hard to a, see a few, a few yeah. years ago they they sort of daylighted that channel so that it, it's open air now okay um, but yeah there's a narrow connection on sort of the southeast end of alameda or across from the southeast end of alameda that that connects lake Merritt. so it's a tidal lagoon just like it was historically yeah. now. thanks for clarifying that yeah sure <laughs> and it, well, it wasn't for a long time right i mean that might be something that's in people's minds right it was actually closed off and in, in most ways, right? I think it was, uh, I'm not quite sure, but I, I believe yeah. it was a, a, a culvert that, you know, probably <laughs> wasn't working so well. Got it. Yeah. Got yeah. It. yeah. So now things can, you, you can even see, yeah, you see, that's why you see bat rays now in Lake Merritt and stuff like that. Um, another question, uh, John, uh, come to you with this one. Gina writes, if I use a kayak or a paddleboard in the bay water, should I rinse off the board or kayak before using it in another part of the bay? I'm just worried about spreading the algae to other parts of the bay, like from Berkeley to the Carquina Strait. I think it's always a good idea to, you know, practice hygiene with your with your water gear when you're going between different water bodies. In this case, you're not really going between different water bodies. So, you know, these are... Probably okay. Uh, yeah, you're probably okay because the, the algae are getting sloshed around by the tides and, and these algae swim. Um, so, and and clearly this year, they're sort of everywhere uh, in the in the western parts of the bay. So... Um, so I wouldn't worry about it too much, but it's it's a good practice in general. Though. Yeah, um, Eileen, we've got some uh, more more complex questions here coming in, particularly about San Francisco uh, PUC. So one listener writes in to say uh, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission is spending two point four billion dollars on a new biosolids facility that will increase the nutrient load into the San Francisco Bay. Currently. SFPUC has no plans to include any process that would offset this in order to prevent any degradation of the waters of the bay. This will lead to more algal blooms, more dead fish, and the eventual death of the bay itself, uh, says this listener. Um, and can you talk to me about the, the new facility, um, because there's, uh, there's multiple questions about this, um, and how you are planning to regulate the facility? Um, they're like many of the wastewater uh, plants in the Bay Area. Uh, a number of them are under upgrades because a lot of these were built back in the 1950s and then the 70s secondary treatment was added. A number of them are 
are planning, designing, and constructing nutrient removal right now in the planning phases. Right now, they're focused on their biosolids, but as part of this permit that's going to be issued next year to the 37 POTWs, we will be requiring the San Francisco PUC, like the other wastewater agencies in the Bay Area, to reduce their nutrient loads. And San Francisco PUC is particularly important because it's one of the largest dischargers of nutrients to San Francisco Bay. So if everybody else reduced their loads in San Francisco PUC, didn't, we would still have high nutrient loads in the Bay. So as part of the permit that will be issued next year, they will be required to do that. Okay. Another listener wants to uh, follow up on this. They say, San Francisco has known since 2009 that nutrients were a problem. San Francisco wrote in 2016 that they were looking at, quote, Camby and how it was known to cause increased nutrients into the discharge. Then they wrote in an environmental impact report that they were not including any side stream treatment in their current plans, which you mentioned earlier. Um, San Francisco wrote in 2023 that they would consider adding it if the regional board ignored other problems. The planning takes years. They've known they've had a problem for years and plan for for more pollution, not less. What do you think? Well, as I mentioned, a lot of these wastewater plants are old, and I think what the SFPUC has been balancing is investing in their aging infrastructure and other components like the biosolids handling that they want to invest in. But now they're going to be required, whereas the last permit, we had them fund the science, we had them do monitoring. But after what happened last summer and again this summer, we're letting the science drive the regulations. And it's very clear from the science that nutrient reductions are going to be required in the permit that will be issued next spring. So they will have to add that into their capital improvement program. And I think they were just trying to prioritize over the last several years their other competing priorities. And until last summer, it wasn't really clear that that's the best use of the public funds. But now that we've seen what the nutrient loads of the bay have caused, the, the, the devastating impact to the fisheries and marine life, it's going to be required in the next permit, and then they're going to have to plan accordingly. Yeah, Eileen, to what extent or like what percentage reduction is going to be required from these places? I'm calling it a significant reduction at this point in time. And we're doing various modelings with our scientists at the San Francisco Estuary Institute. They're leading our science study that's been going on for many years. And they're looking at the data. They were out on the Bay last week with the US Geological Survey staff who are also our partners in this. And so we want the science to drive our regulations. And we have yet to determine the exact percentage, uh, but we do know significant load reductions are needed. And we'll know more by next spring um, after we've completed the data analysis, the modeling, and the special studies. Jen Rosenfeld with uh, San Francisco Baykeeper. I mean, what would you like to see in terms of a reduction and on what timescale? Well, the, as Eileen says, the, the reduction that's necessary has to be led by the science. I mean, this is expensive to do, right? We're talking about a major change in our wastewater infrastructure, and we want to get the, we want to scale that change correctly to address the problem, but not, you know, there's money could be spent in other ways too. But what I would like to see overall is uh, a reduction that does follow the, the science required, um, and that moves us to a realm where we're not experiencing or not at high risk of experiencing harmful algal blooms that kill, you know, uncountable numbers of fish. And at the same time, uh, a permit that encourages 
nature-based solutions and multi-benefit solutions like water recycling, treatment wetlands, uh, restoration of historic wetlands around the bay's margin that can absorb these nutrients uh, into a form that is, you know, fish and wildlife habitat rather than deadly to fish and wildlife. So uh, the, you know, the science is going to have to lead the way here. We are going to find out about that soon. And I should say that we're fortunate that the uh, Regional Water Board and SFEI and others, uh, uh, last time the permit was updated, you know, saw the need to do the science to get this right and began the nutrient management strategy, which has developed a lot of the information that we're talking about today. So we do have more of a handle on this process and can move quickly in the next uh, permit update next year. Ezra, um, you had a, a source in one of your stories who also seemed to worry about sort of getting the scale of this mitigation right. I mean, what's the real worry, like that we would do too much or that we would do too little? I think it's that we do too little, right? Like if we don't do enough on this, then we're going to continue seeing these algae blooms because the conditions are going to be perfect for them to proliferate. Um, I just wonder about how long it will take for these plants to be built. Like if they're, if we this re- permit comes out next year, like is it going to take 10 years for these plants to come up? Yeah, Eileen, that's a good question. What I mean, what are we looking at in terms of when we could see these changes? Yeah, so it all depends. There's 37 wastewater agencies in the Bay Area. As I mentioned, some of them have already started. Some of them have already done the planning. Some are in the design phase, and some have already started constructing improvements. So um, a number of them are already in that phase. Those who haven't started, they're going to have to sprint a little bit to catch up. But if you think about the planning phase and then you got preliminary design, preparing the drawings, the specs, these are public agencies putting a project out to bid as a several month process, awarding, issuing notice to proceed. Um, it's a multi-year process and also depends on the treatment technology. Um, something like side stream treatment, uh, which gets maybe about a 19% reduction, can happen more quickly than the highest grade level if you really want to upgrade the facility to where you're having significant reductions in the order of 50 to 70%. That's going to take longer. Um, so that's something that we'll be looking at as we issue the permit. But it's it's not like flipping a light switch. It will take many years to go from planning, design, and construction. But we did put in the last permit recognition for those who were early actors. And as a result, a number of them have, as I mentioned, started the planning design and upgrades already. Yeah. Um, we have a few uh, more sort of like specific questions. And John, I think I'm going to come to you um, on some of these. Um, this this question might sound funny initially, but I think it kind of goes to the what is the scale of the nutrient load of the bay? Uh, one listener writes and says, is any of this caused by people defecating in the Bay Area, people who don't have access to toilets? Is that part of the problem? And the, the reason I'm, I'm curious about this is just it, it, the number of people who were doing that relative to sort of the, the scale of the nutrients that are flowing from our wastewater facilities. Yeah, we get this question a lot or this uh, more often comes as an assertion that, you know, it's the unhoused community because they don't have access to proper toilet facilities that's uh, causing the problem. And I, I just should state clearly that that is definitely not the problem. Uh, I mean, the message here is everybody poops and everybody's poop stinks and delivers nutrients to the bay, whether it's, um, I mean, these wastewater treatment plants are operating as designed in most cases, and 
they're not designed to remove nutrients. So what you flush down the toilet still turns into nutrients in the bay that feeds uh, harmful algae. Um, and and the unhoused community is no different. I mean, so the the um, the unhoused community has environmental impacts that are m- most directly felt by the unhoused community, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we we it's really not not right to try and shift a problem that is systemic and endemic onto you know the most vulnerable people who are who are just trying to get by. The solution there would be, of course, to provide them with uh, the the toilet facilities and and other resources that they need. Um, but also in San Francisco in particular, as I mentioned, San Francisco has a combined sewer and stormwater system. So what's in the street gets treated much the same as, as what gets flushed down the toilet. It's really not, uh, not the source of this problem. Here's another um, ecological question. Um, Tony asks, could it be possible to introduce a beneficial organism to the bay to compete with the algae for the nutrients? Well, the, the thing to keep in mind here is that all of these organisms are beneficial Right, all of these phytoplankton are beneficial. They are the food web that our fish and wildlife depend on, um, and they're beneficial until one or another of them gets out of control. Um, so, rather than introducing a new organism, we we can do things like restore the bay's historic wetlands or use treatment marshes, which is kind of the same thing. You have an organism, uh, marsh plants, a set of organisms that are beneficial, competing for those nutrients, filtering the water um, before it can en- enrich uh, the waters of San Francisco Bay and lead to a harmful algal bloom. But, you know, the notion of introducing some exotic species to, you know, that's, yeah. I don't know why she swallowed the fly kind of, <laughs> you know, it leads it leads to bad outcomes. Yeah, and the bad outcomes, you know, can range to all many things. Like in Lake Tahoe, they put these shrimp in there to feed the trout, and then now there's trillions of little shrimp in the lake that don't belong there, right? And it messes up the food web. Mm-hmm. We always think it's a good idea, and then <laughs> we discover the next set of, of things. Um, another listener writes, and, and John and Eileen, I think I'm going to take this to, to both of you. A uh, listener writes, you know, we were out on the bay last Sunday, definitely saw the reddish-brown water. We knew what was coming next, dead fish, dead bay. Please ask the regional board and baykeeper to stop studying the dang thing. They have studied it to death, at least to the death of the bay. It's time for some real regulation enforcement. Time to talk and study is, is over. Um Eileen, first of all, I'll take this to you. I mean, do you feel like you have enough information um, to to make the determinations you need? Well, we could always do with more information because this is a multi-billion dollar issue for the Bay Area. And it's going to be the ratepayers, the people who live in the Bay Area who are going to have to pay for it. So we at the Water Board want to get it right. We want to make sure there's no regrets investments in the infrastructure, which can be spent on something else. So um, even after we issue the permit next year and require load reductions, we're still going to want to study the Bay. Things continue to change with climate change, their new emerging contaminants. We want to better understand the nutrient loads of the Bay, even as we reduce them. So although we are going to be requiring nutrient reductions, we are still going to study San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay because it's very important here at the Water Board. Our mission is to protect, preserve, and enhance the Bay Area's water resources. And San Francisco Bay is a key water water resource for the Bay Area. John, what do you think? Well, I agree with the the sentiment. I mean, Baykeeper has been calling for, uh, you know, updates to the 
to the permit that Eileen is mentioning for a while and warning that this problem could become real. And last year, it, it you know showed that it is real uh, for the fish, wildlife, and and communities around the bay. Uh, and uh, we we did need the science to, for instance, determine that it was wastewater treatment plants versus stormwater runoff versus inflow from the delta. Right. So that science is helping us zone in on what is the problem and how much of a uh, solution do we need, right? Like we're not going to turn wastewater into distilled water, right? Mm -hmm. That returns to the bay. And and with each increment, you're adding billions and billions of dollars. And those are billions of billions of dollars that can go to other important things. So getting the scope of the problem right was necessary. We're at that point now. Uh, We're going to have the details that we need to to move forward uh, rapidly uh, as early as next spring, um, and that will set off a long process of of actually upgrading these plants. But uh, you know, it's it's a good thing that we did the work uh, early. We wish that the bloom hadn't have happened before we really mm-hmm. figured out everything we needed. But we're very close to having a precise answer to how fast do we need to move and how far mm-hmm. do we need to go. Ezra, um, as people are following this and and watching it play out, do we know how quickly we'll know if this really is taking off as it did last year, or if it's going to die out? There's, it feels like there's still a lot of questions over sort of the exact course of this algal bloom. We're sort of like at day nine or day 10 into this so far. So just like with the pandemic or other things like that, we didn't know what was happening until it started happening, ramping up. So I guess the big indicator will be is like if the water turns brown or the teaish color in more places, it's a very visual thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you see more fish dying, um, I think those are the really only two ways we will know what. And I think the other indicator is just like the wet, the weather, if it's warm, if mm-hmm. the water's not moving a lot because the tides are weak, because there's not a lot of wind, those can all be conditions that can make this proliferate. Yeah. John, what do you think? Can you look and predict anything for us? No, unfortunately, uh, you know, as an ecologist, I, I don't make many predictions, <laughs> right, um, yeah. uh, th- that are specific. I mean, I know that the longer that we take to reduce nutrient loads, the more likely that a bloom will happen. Last year demonstrated what the costs of that are. But in terms of this year and what's going to happen, uh, it's really there are so many variables at play many of which we don't understand, you know, tides, weather, but also the behavior of this organism uh, and the behavior of other organisms mm-hmm. and how they respond. And just the accidents of chance uh, are really going to determine how this bloom proceeds. I, I really hope that we don't see you know, hundreds of dead white sturgeon around the bay like we did last year and uncountable numbers of other fish because uh, the bay is not going to be able to yeah. withstand that kind of impact uh, repeatedly. We've been talking about the return of the algal bloom in Bay Area waters. Killed a ton of fish last year. Um, thanks so much to John Rosenfield, the science director of San Francisco Baykeeper. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eileen White, executive officer for the Water Board SF Bay region. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you, Ezra David Romero, KQED climate reporter. This has been Forum. Thank you so much to listeners. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.